And let's open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, truly our hearts are full of thankfulness this morning. We are thankful for the freedoms that we have in this country. The freedom to gather and to worship. We are thankful for the comforts that we have. Comfortable chairs, air conditioning, heat, things to keep us comfortable as we worship. We are thankful for the gift of family and of friends. We are thankful for your mercies that are new every morning. And Lord, most importantly, we are thankful for the cross of Jesus Christ. That is why we are gathered here this morning. Unified in Christ. With hope. With joy. And so, Heavenly Father, it is in that thankfulness, it is in that hope, that we do turn our attention this morning to this passage. And I pray that you will, that your spirit will work as we work our way through Ephesians 4, 25 to 32, that you would open our eyes to the glorious realization of who we are in Christ. That we would embrace our new identity. That we would live like those who have been brought from death to life for your glory alone. Give me boldness, Lord. Be clarity of mind. Give me authority to speak the truth of your word clearly and boldly for your glory. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You guys know what this is? It's a banana. It's exactly right. Funny story, I'm actually allergic to bananas. If I were to eat this, my throat would get really tight. And, so I'm not going to do that this morning. But how do you know when a banana is ripe? Is it not the color that you see on the outside? You see, a greenish-yellow banana... It might look good, and depending on your preferences, maybe that is just, that's perfect for you. But the reality is, I was doing a little bit of reading on this this week, I didn't realize this, but this is actually almost a perfectly ripe banana. Because a ripe banana is not just yellow, but it's got marks, brown marks, starting to show up on the outside. That's when you know that it is ripe. <laughs> But here's a question for you. Does the banana's color make it ripe? Or does the color of the banana merely show that the banana is ripe? Do you understand the difference there? In other words, is the color of the banana the cause of the ripeness, or is it merely a sign of ripeness? I think we all understand that a banana that is the right color is ripe 
not because of the color that it is. Rather, the color simply shows the ripeness that is on the inside of that banana. It is ripe, therefore, it is yellow with brown spots. Or to carry this illustration a little further, say I had a bunch of old bananas. Or they were on sale at the store because they're old, they're almost completely brown. I mean, they just, they look nasty, they're mushy. But let's say I take a, 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 a thing of yellow paint and I paint the outside of my bananas yellow. Now, because they're yellow, are they ripe? No. But they're yellow, that's what a ripe banana looks like. So why aren't they ripe? They're still rotten. Because making a banana look ripe does not actually make a banana ripe. Or, as we turn our attention to our passage this morning, what we'll see is that outward conformity has no actual bearing on inward reality. A rotten banana is rotten regardless of what the color on the outside says. But what does a banana have to do with Ephesians 4, 25-32? You see, this passage is a passage that very practically explains what the new man, as we saw in Ephesians 4, 24, this passage very practically explains what that new man looks like. Peter O'Brien puts it this way, the commentator. The movement and thought from verses 20 to 24 into verse 25, the movement of thought is from the lofty heights of learning Christ and the new creation to the nitty-gritty of Christian behavior. This morning we're getting into the nitty-gritty of Christian behavior. And yet it's important for us to properly follow Paul's transition here so that you do not misunderstand what I am saying. We must understand that the practical expectations of Ephesians 4, verses 25 to 32, the nitty-gritty, if you will, these things are the result, not the cause, of being a new man in Christ by God's grace. In fact, you see that right from the beginning. Notice with me, if you will, the opening word of Ephesians 4, 25. Therefore, Therefore. In fact, that's my, my first point. It's just going to focus on that one word. This opening word, therefore, it's perhaps the most important word of this entire passage. Because it connects the expectations of this passage, who you must be, to the grace of God in Ephesians 1-3, who you are. It helps us to see the flow of thought in this passage. Because of this, now this. Because you have learned Christ, because you have been made new in Christ, this is therefore how you must act. It is this word, therefore, that silences every charge of legalism. In fact, I want to pause there for a second on that word. Legalism. Because you see, we're, we're coming to a passage where Paul says, you must act this way. If you're a Christian, you must act this way. You must do this and this and this and this. 
And there are those in our day, as there were in Paul's day, who would look at a passage like this, a passage that is full of moral expectations for the believer, they would look at this passage and they would charge us with legalism. They would say that we, with Paul, are adding works to the grace of God. It's as if they're saying that Paul is saying here, this is what you must do to truly be saved. But when they make that charge, they fail to recognize this simple word at the beginning of verse 25. Therefore. Paul is not saying, this is what you must do to be saved. Rather, he is saying, this is what you must do because you have been saved. Ephesians 4.25-32 is not a call to legalistic conformity. It is a call to biblical holiness. But what's the difference? What is the difference between legalistic conformity and biblical holiness? The difference is this. Legalism demands outward conformity in the hopes of obtaining righteousness. Legalism is like painting a rotten banana yellow in the hopes that it will then be deemed ripe. Legalism finds hope in rule-keeping. That's not biblical holiness. You see, biblical holiness, on the other hand, expects outward conformity because of the imputed righteousness that is mine in Christ. It is the expectation that those who have been made in new, new in Christ, those who have been declared righteous by the grace of God, that we will act that way. That we will act like we have been made new in Christ. Whereas legalism finds hope in rule-keeping, biblical holiness finds hope in Christ alone. So brothers and sisters, it's important as we turn our attention to this passage this morning, it's important for us to recognize that our need is not conformity. That's the message of legalism. Our need is not conformity. Our need is transformation. And that is the glorious message of God's grace in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not conformity, but transformation. This is what Paul is teaching here. It is the good news that in Christ, by grace alone, you have been transformed. You have been made new. And that is why the word therefore is so important at the beginning of Ephesians 4.25. That little word, therefore. What is it, therefore? It is there to ground Paul's moral expectations in the grace of God. It is a word that draws our attention to recognize that the order, the progression of Ephesians is purposeful. It is a word that helps us to see that the grace of God in Christ to us as expounded in the first three chapters of Ephesians precedes and empowers then the moral expectations of Ephesians 4-6. to 
This is the context that we must understand. The context with which we must approach this passage and really the rest of the book of Ephesians. The moral expectations of Scripture on the believer flow from the grace-fueled transformation of the believer. The moral expectations of Scripture on the believer, even as we will see in this passage this morning, flow from the grace-fueled transformation of the believer. You have been made new. Now act like it. That's what Paul is saying here. You have been made new. Now act like it. Therefore. So what is it? What is it that the grace of God at work in us produces? What is it that Paul expects of these believers who have been made new in Christ? That's where we're going to spend the rest of our time. These are the new expectations of the new man. As we see at the end of verse 25 through verse 32. And even following. This is a passage of contrasts. I want to back up and reread verse 20 to 24, where we were last week. It's in this passage, or two weeks ago, it's in, the, in this passage where Paul introduces this new man and the old man. And you'll remember, he, he starts in verses 17 to 19 by saying, this is how you used to walk, but this is how you must walk no more. You have been changed. You've been made new. And that's where he gets in verse 20. But you have not so learned Christ if indeed you have heard Him and have been taught by Him as the truth is in Jesus that you put off concerning your former conduct the old man which grows corrupt according to deceitful lusts and be renewed in the spirit of your mind and that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Put off and put on. That's what you see as you work your way through this passage. A negative statement, put off the old, old man, followed by, or in one, in one case, preceded by, a positive statement and put on. Put off and put on. Don't do this, do this. This passage is not meant to be a comprehensive list addressing all the issues of this specific church to which Paul is writing. Or, addressing every single area of the Christian life. It is an overview. It is a snapshot that gives you a picture of what it looks like to live as a new man in Christ. The new expectations of the new man. What is the first one that we see in verse 25? That you speak truth. Speak the truth. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Having put away falsehood, or putting away lying. You see, the old man loves falsehood. This idea of falsehood, it's really kind of an all-encompassing idea. 
It is the deceitfulness of the old man in both word and in action. It includes lying to your parents. It includes stretching the truth on your taxes. It includes stealing time from your boss. It includes the deception of cheating on your spouse. The deception of looking on things, at things on the internet that you should not be looking at or of cheating on a test. These are all things that are common to the old man. In fact, some of these things are even encouraged or laughed at in the world around us as long as you can get away with it. But that is not how you have learned Christ, brothers and sisters. This is not who you are any longer. So instead of loving falsehood, instead of loving deception, instead of loving lying, speak the truth. In fact, note that the church is meant to be a community of truth. Therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you. Notice it doesn't say, you know, let those of you who teach Sunday school. Let those of you who are deacons, those of you who are pastors, those of you who do this or do that, it says let each one of you. If you are in Christ, you must speak truth. You must love the truth. You must be people of the truth. We are all expected to speak truth with, one, with our neighbors. Notice specifically that here in verse 25, even as you go on in the verse, each one of you speak truth with his neighbor. Why? For we are members of one another. Specifically, the neighbors that he is talking about are our neighbors that we have here in this church. He's talking about brothers and sisters in Christ, members of the church. We are members of one another. Therefore, we must speak truth to one another. This goes back to Ephesians 4.15, a passage where he says, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head into Christ. We are called to speak the truth in love to one another, to the benefit of one another. How much conflict and pain could be avoided if we would simply speak the truth? And through the Bible with J. Vernon McGee, McGee uses a quote from the early church father John Chrysostom to illustrate the importance of the truth among the members of one body. Chrysostom said this, Let not the eye lie to the foot, nor the foot to the eye. If there be a deep pit and its mouth is covered with reeds, uh, shall present to the eye the appearance of solid ground. Will not the eye use the foot to ascertain whether it is hollow underneath or whether it is firm and resists? Will the foot tell a lie and not the truth as it is? And what again, if the eye were to spy a serpent or a wild beast, will it lie to the foot? The obvious answer there is no, right? 
Your foot is not going to try to trick your eye. And your eye is not going to try to trick your foot so that it gets bitten by a snake. Your eye needs your foot. They are members of one body. Brothers and sisters, we are members of one another. We must look out for one another. We must tell the truth because we have been made new. But practically, we must tell the truth because it's to our own benefit. We are members of one body. We are growing together in Christ as the church grows to the glory of God. So speak the truth. But secondly, verse 26 to 27, be angry. Now that might catch you kind of off guard. What do you mean, be angry? He goes on to say, be angry and do not sin. Let not the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Be angry and do not sin. This one stands out among the others as beginning with a positive rather than with a negative. But what does Paul mean by be angry and do not sin? How is this possible? Well, it's important for us to note that Paul here is quoting Psalm 4.4. The context of Psalm 4 helps us to understand what Paul is saying here. Psalm 4.4 says, Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Selah. You see, in Psalm 4, the psalmist has been unjustly accused. The psalmist, however, has come to rejoice as the Lord has turned his frustration and his anger to joy. He has seen justice done. So he now, in verse 4, encourages his readers to also guard against allowing their anger against injustice to turn into unjust anger. Paul is using this phrase similar here. He's referencing righteous anger, righteous against, anger against injustice, anger against sin. It's a controlled anger, a frustration over the broken world around us. It's an anger that rightly understood and rightly controlled helps us to see sin as the gross injustice that it is. It is doing the right thing in the right way. Being angry against injustice. Controlled. Jesus was angry at injustice. In Matthew 21, 12 and Mark 3, 5. In fact, Jesus' anger even led him to take action against those who were taking advantage of those less fortunate. Those who were using the temple to make money rather than to worship God. And yet we know that his anger never even approached sin. Be angry at sin. Be angry at injustice. Let it motivate you to holiness. But do not allow your anger to turn into sin. You can almost think of it like fire. 
Fire is a good thing when controlled, when used properly. But how quickly when it is uncontrolled is it can be dangerous and deadly. Do not allow your anger against sin to linger. In fact, notice what he goes on to say. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. Do not allow your anger, even righteous anger, to linger. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath. To linger on anger, even righteous anger, is to invite temptation. Even righteous anger can quickly turn out of control. I mean, just think about it. How, how easily anger can turn into bitterness. How easily anger can turn into hate or worry or hopelessness or empty speculation when it is left to linger. Recognize evil for evil. Recognize injustice for injustice. Let it bother you. Be angry at it. But then deal with it and move on looking to your hope in Christ. Be angry and do not sin. So those who are in Christ, those who have been made new, they speak the truth. They recognize evil and they, they hate it. They hate injustice. Thirdly, they work hard. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with another in need. The old man steals. Stealing is, by definition, a selfish act. It is taking what is rightfully someone else's with no concern for them, only for me. This describes the old man and his way of life, his way of thinking, his way of approaching things. Self-centered. But notice that the reason here, the, the focus here is not only on the act of stealing, but even on the reason for stealing. You see that in the, uh, the opposite side. Let him who labor work with his hands what is good that he may have something to give him who has a need. The reason for stealing to begin with is a laziness that leaves me unable to support myself and encourage others. But the new man works hard to provide. Now, I want to pause here and say that there are those who work hard and yet still are not able to provide. That's not what this passage is talking about. This is talking about the, the one whose own lack of preparedness, the one whose own laziness has put them in a position where they come to stealing. This is talking about the one who chooses to take the hands that God has given them and rather than becoming skilled to use them for something profitable, they use them to steal. This call from laziness is seen in the call to hard-skilled work. Put in the effort to work hard and to work well. 
And again, notice the motivation behind the hard work of the new man. It is an others-focused motivation. It's a call to work hard, not just to provide for myself, but to be able to provide for others. Specifically those who have needs. Those who are unable to provide for themselves. In fact, we're starting to see kind of a theme here. Just as my motivation in speaking the truth is the overall health of the body, so my motivation in working hard is the ability to provide for those in need. Again, the overall health of the body. The church that is central to what Paul is saying here in Ephesians. Notice the great importance of the church and all that Paul is saying here. It is central to the life of the believer. We fight for one another. We grow together. Not just as individuals, but as a church. And everything that we do is motivated by desire to see each other thrive in Christ. Even as we see here. Work hard so that you can provide. Next, we see a call to edify. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, for whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Interestingly, Paul here again returns to the idea of speech. We started with speech, right? Speak truth. Now he comes back around. Whereas in verse 25, the focus is on speaking truth. Here, the focus is on speaking good. Good speech as opposed to bad speech. Corrupt communication. It's the idea of unwholesome speech. Everything from from filthy and divisive language to just plain old meanness. The old man does not guard his mouth. The old man spews the perverted, unfiltered thoughts of his heart. But once again, that is not how you learned Christ. You see, the new man recognizes that he will give an account for every word that he speaks. The new man stewards his words even as he stewards his finances. I think it's good to pause here and to just ask ourselves, when was the last time that you paused to evaluate the words that leave your mouth? Do you think before you speak? What about moments of frustration when no one else is around? Maybe you're sitting here and you think, well, I'm good in this area. I've never talked filthy. That's disgusting. I don't cuss. I was raised better than that. But that's not all this is talking about. Do you spew gossip? Do you tear others down even behind their back? Maybe you're just outright mean. 
Brothers and sisters, these are all practices of the old man. We must guard our speech. The new man speaks truth. And he speaks it in love. He speaks edification. It's opposed to the rotten garbage of the old man. The new man's speech is good. It's full of life. Its goal is not to tear down, but to edify, to build up. It's looking for edification. Necessary edification. As it says there. Necessary. We live in a broken world and sin-cursed bodies and life is hard. Edification is necessary. We need to lift one another up. Your brothers and sisters need to be edified by you. Are you ready to provide that? Are you able? Are you looking? Every single one of us is called to the ministry of edifying speech. Every single one of us is to be looking for opportunities to build up one another, to be used by the Lord, to impart grace, to remind each other of our hope that is in Christ. In fact, as this passage goes on to say us, to do the opposite, to divide and to tear down, is to grieve the Holy Spirit. This indwelling Holy Spirit, who specifically in Ephesians already we've seen in verse chapter 2, verse 18 and 22, at the beginning of chapter 4, in verses 3 and 4, the Holy Spirit, who specifically has the ministry of unifying us as one body in Christ, He is grieved when we divide. He is grieved when we tear each other down. The immediate context is focused on language, but but even more broadly, in this whole context of Ephesians 4, 25-32, the Holy Spirit is grieved when the new man behaves as the old man. When you go against who you are in Christ. Our salvation is secure. Praise the Lord. The Holy Spirit is our seal. We have been brought to life. We have been sealed. Why would we who are alive live like we are dead? Why would we tear down when we are members of one body growing together in Christ? I think it's worth mentioning here in passing, just Generally, Ephesians 4.30 is a pretty theologically significant verse. It teaches us not only the Holy Spirit's role in securing our salvation, He is the seal, one of His roles there, but also this is a passage that shows us the personality of the Spirit. What I mean by that is the fact that the, the Holy Spirit is not just some impersonal force, but He's a person. He can be grieved. He's a member of the Godhead. So, that's free. You can just follow it away somewhere for later when you need it. Edify one another. Edify one another. Finally, be kind. 
Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. There's an old saying, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. We know the power of words, do we not? We know how almost laughably wrong this saying is. But here as we come to verse 31 and 32, Paul turns his attention from our words to those sticks and stones. The old man is just simply mean. In fact, kind of all of these words, if you were to sum them up, bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, evil speaking, malice, summed up in one word, it's the idea of, of mean, the idea of hate. And notice they're all focused on how we treat each other. Bitterness is the idea of animosity. Under the surface, something that I'm holding on to, I will not let go of. Wrath is the idea of just a burning rage, an outburst. Anger is very simply anger. It's just there, under the surface, burning slowly. Clamor is the explosion of angry yelling, screaming. Evil speaking, the idea of disrespect or slander. Malice, just a general mean-spiritedness. This kind of attitude, this treatment toward one another has no place in the church or really anywhere in the Christian life. And yet the sad reality is that as you look at these six words, bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, evil speaking, and malice, could easily be used to describe many church business meetings. It could easily be used to describe how we treat one another so often. So often, those six words, sadly, that is how the world views the church. Division and hate. Brothers and sisters, these things ought not so to be. May we never lose sight of how precious the church is that Christ has purchased. And we never lose sight of how precious one another is in the eyes of Christ. That person who frustrates you, that person who gets under your skin, Jesus Christ loves them. He died for them. They are your brother or sister in Christ. What God has brought together, let not man tear apart. I think those words can apply to more than just marriage. Even the church. Who are we to divide what God has brought together? Who are we to tear down a brother or sister in Christ? In contrast, the new man is kind. Kindness is a fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. It's used by Paul's description of love in 1 Corinthians 13.4. 
And I don't think I need to go into some deep word study and theological explanation of what it means to be kind. You know. Kindness is simply kind. It is loving. It is caring. This is a verse that if you grew up in a Christian home, you learned early and you were reminded of it often. Be kind. You know this. Children know this. And yet, why is it so hard to simply be kind? It comes down to the next word. We so often fail to be kind because we fail to be tender-hearted. You see, kindness and action begins with tenderness of heart. Tenderheartedness is a spirit-empowered disposition of love toward one another. Whereas the old man has malice, a disposition, a mean-spirited disposition, the new man is tender in heart towards one another. It's a disposition of love. It is a gentleness, an assuming the best, a wanting the best. Tenderness of heart produces kindness, but it also produces forgiveness. As we see here in this passage, a willful, a joyful forgiveness. A forgiveness that knows no limit. A forgiveness that was modeled for us in the unconditional love and the limitless forgiveness of God for us in Christ. Forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Is there anything that you cannot forgive? If God has forgiven you of so much. Really this closing phrase, even as God and Christ has forgiven you, brings us back to the very beginning, that first word that we started with. Therefore. It reminds us that this is what the new man looks like, not because it is easy, and not by my own effort but by the Spirit, because of who I am in Christ. I have been made new. I've been changed. Therefore, this is how I must act. Brothers and sisters, this passage is not meant to guilt you into conformity or obedience. This passage is meant to open your eyes to who you are in Christ, and to call you to biblical holiness. Your outward conduct is a product of your inward reality. You act according to who you truly are. Do not put your faith in good works or conformity, and yet, at the same time, do not neglect good works. You've been saved to them, as Ephesians 2 reminds us. Your good works are the evidence of God's work in you. It is the expectation of God for you. So as those who are in Christ, speak the truth. Stand for righteousness. Work hard to provide for one another. Lift each other up with your words and simply be kind. You are members of one family, members of one body. You are in Christ. Maybe this morning, 
Maybe you need to repent of legalism. Maybe if we've been working our way through this passage, you've come to see that you have been putting your hope in conformity rather than fully in the grace of God to you in Christ. Repent of your legalism and cling to Christ. You cannot change yourself. You will never get yourself to a place where you are worthy or ready. You are fully dependent on the grace of God. Is that not the gospel? Is that not what we confess each month as we come to the Lord's table? As we look back to the cross? Why? Because our hope is fully in that cross. It is not a righteousness of our own constructing that we cling to. Even our righteousness is as filthy rags as Isaiah tells us. There is none righteous, not even a little bit righteous. No, not one. Our hope is not in conformity. Our hope is in transformation. Our hope is in grace. Our hope is in the gospel. Our hope is in Christ. Repent of that legalism that so easily takes hold of our hearts and cling to Christ. We are called to grow by the power of the Spirit at work in us. Maybe this morning the Lord has shown you an area where you are weak. Endeavor this week by the power of the Spirit at work in you to grow. Speak the truth. Love, righteousness, and justice. Work hard. Edify one another. Be kind because of who you are in Christ. Maybe you've not been kind. Maybe you've been divisive or mean with your language. And I would encourage you, even now, even as we turn our attention to close this service, as we sing together, go to that person even now and confess. Make it right. Maybe you have been loving evil rather than burning with righteous anger against it. Confess it to the Lord and to whomever it affects. Take serious the call to biblical, spirit-empowered, grace-fueled holiness. To God be the glory.